Flat Out RC podcast time. Thanks for joining me. Andrew Sill here, the host of this program where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. Thanks once again for joining me. Uh, what to talk about this week? I've uh, got a really good guest in Peter Ricks. Now, you may have heard of Peter's name if you've been a reader of Australian magazines such as Airborne and, of course, Flat Out RC because he was a, uh, a contributor to both magazines. So, we will have a good chat with Peter. From, he's up in Queensland, sunny Queensland. Uh, for those that you've been listening to us every week, I've had a cold for the past few weeks. Uh, I'm three weeks in now and my voice still sounds a little bit funny. But anyway, uh, I've been coughing a lot. I don't have COVID. I had a test. Anyway, we're going to get better. been a big week in the hobby actually uh we have we have a new model to talk about uh and it was announced via a teaser from a gentleman by the name of mike patey now for those of you that love youtube and watching aviation related videos mike patey and and his brother are both into full-size aircraft mainly uh and modifying aircraft now mike patey had a wilger which he modified, put a turbine engine in it, increased the wingspan, massive bush wheels. He's, he's basically into bush flying um, and going fast. That's another story. But let's just say that he's into bush flying, built this wheeljaw for bush flying, and it was phenomenal. And it, it was called Draco. Uh, Draco wasn't around for very long, really, because Mike had an incident uh, taking off at his local... Uh, airport with a bit of a, a wind situation that got under the wing and flipped the plane over just before it was uh well, as it was trying to take off uh no damage which is good but draco has now been made into a model aircraft uh horizon hobby via their e-flight brand have built a two meter wingspan foamy draco now what they did is they they sort of uh laser scan the entire Draco plane so they can get all the dimensions right and all the scale details and all that kind of stuff, the rivets and all that, and basically have made a mould and, and producing this beautiful foam aircraft. Now, this thing is going to sell out. Uh, it just As soon as it was announced by um, Horizon this plane was coming, people started uh, you know wanting to buy it and there was a lot of chatter on Facebook, especially around this aircraft and, and because it is a very unique and special aircraft. The real Draco was just phenomenal in its performance. Like you haven't, you've never seen a plane. You know, it's because it's quite a big plane, really, the Wilger. Uh, but you've never seen a plane that can take off in such a short distance. You know, it's just massive amounts of power, some really good engineering, and that's what Mike does. Mike Patey really engineers, re-engineers the planes. Uh, smart guy, um, workaholic, in a good sense. You know. Uh, so this Draco, what's it all about? So I've just got the website in front of me. Two-meter wingspan, as I said, and it's basically a stall aircraft. Short takeoff and landing. Um, you know, it's got flaps and slats and that kind of thing. Um, big elevator and rudder. Um, ailerons and flaps sort of seem to be sort of a, a normal kind of size. Now, two-meter, it's got 100 amp. Comes sort of as a, as a bind and fly, um, or you can get it as a, what they call PMP, where you just put your receiver in. So it's got a 100 amp spectrum avian brushless smart ESC, so one of their latest ESCs, brushless outrunner motor, of course, metal geared servos all installed, 
If you get the Bind and Fly version, you get the AR637TA6 channel spectrum receiver. That's got the um, AS3X stuff in it with the gyros uh, in it and safe technology, which most of you will turn off anyway. Uh, battery is big battery range, 4S to 6S from anywhere from 4,000 to 7,000 milliamp hour LiPo. No, no, oh, you, could, you could get a 7,000 um, milliamp hour 6S into it, I'd say. Of course, a little bit more weight, but um, I'd go 6S for sure. Like the real Drago had, it was a turbine engine, had plenty of grunt. Um, so I'd be running the 6S, say 6S 5000, I think be a nice, nice battery uh, for it. Um, ultimate bush plane, they say. Well, Draco was the ultimate bush plane. Um, this is get to the chase. What are some of the features? Okay, as I said, the BNF version, the Bind and Fly has the A3X uh, stuff in it, self-leveling functionality if you want it. As I said, most of you aren't going to use it. Uh, smart technology, which is Spectrum sort of pushing, which is uh, that integration sort of almost from a telemetry perspective where you can get information on what the ESC is doing, batteries and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Uh, versatile power system, as we mentioned, different uh, batteries. It's saying uh, you can achieve long flight times up to ten to fifteen minutes plus. Gee, I suppose with a seven thousand milliamp hour pack, if you if you're not flying around full throttle, which I wouldn't with this guy on the plane anyway. It's low and slow would be great. The big thing about this, I think, for E flight is the amazing scale detail that they've built into this plane. Like Draco was a heavily modified wheelchair. Very heavily modified from the suspension to the wheels to the props, you name it. So, oh, of course, the engine, but the scale detail is just phenomenal. So, all the um, molded in power lines, hatches, and other surface features, steps, antennas, wingtip skids, clear windshield and windows, plus a detailed cockpit with backlit instrument panel and pilot figure add to the incredible scale appearance. Functional scale features here we go. This is what I really love. If you've heard um, the brand King Shocks known in racing circles and things like that. Well, that's what Mike likes putting on his aircraft because he wants that really big articulation suspension for landing on rough strips out in the bush. Licensed scale like king shocks on the main gear and tail wheel. Uh, there's like twin shocks on each on each main wheel and a single on the tail wheel. Uh, leading edge slats, slotted flaps and more are functional extra scale features that take your experience to another level. LED lights. The tail was a work of art. It's it, it's it's got a, a shock on it, um, spring driven for steering. Uh, what's he say? Articulate shock absorbing main gear is equipped with oversized tundra style tires to soak up the bumps. Production prop prop clearance. It's also custom made from fully molded carbon fiber to handle short takeoffs from from and landing on a variety of surfaces. Shock-equipped and steerable towel offers excellent ground handling. Whether moving forward or when utilizing the optional use, motor reversing to taxi backward too. See, what Mike Patey could do, he had variable pitch prop and he could uh, he could back the plane in. There's videos of him on YouTube backing Draco into, into his hangar. Uh, and you can actually do that, reverse the ESC on a switch or something like that and uh, and and back, back it in, which I reckon would be a great feature if you're in a stall comp that you land and you put the uh, motor in reverse to stop the plane like a brake. Speaking of props and stuff like that, uh, four-bladed prop. Four-bladed, because that's what the real one has. So that's what it's got. Uh, durable precision, precision made from fully molded EPO. 
Uh, outstanding scale appearance. You see, you really need a molded plane to get this kind of scale detail unless you've got a very steady hand and a lot of time on your hands. Um, another great feature that I like about this is the way that the wings are held on because it's actually a toolless design. Two-piece wing is secured with unique quarter-turn thumb screws, so no tools required for field assembly, disassembly, along with the V2 hands-free servo connection. I love that. FMS is good at doing stuff like that. But um, this is awesome. So no tools. You can take it to the field. And we're talking about a decent-sized plane here. We're talking about two meters. Um, I'll see if I can find the specs waiting for the computer. Okay. They say approximate assembly times less than an hour. You need to supply your own batteries, EPO, brushless motor. Length, 1,346 1, millimeters. 53 inches, so 1.3 roughly um, length. And of course, the two meter wingspan. Uh, well, 1,974 to be precise, 77 inches. So big, big plane. Uh, some of the video footage, it looks great. The thing though with, oh, with video footage is everything always looks great in video footage because uh, often they have good pilots doing crazy things. And of course you would, they're trying to sell it to us, aren't they? Uh, waiting to hear what some of the reviews say. I'd love to get a model in my hands, but there's none around. So that's the next thing. They've already sold out. Uh, this is what this says on the um, Horizon Hobby website. First shipment sold out. Pre-order now to reserve your spot in following shipments. So they are going to make more. Um, I was talking to the local distributor here, um, the guys down at Model Flight, O'Reilly Model Products, and uh, they said that they're going like hotcakes uh, already, pre-orders from shops and things like that to, to try to get them out. So uh, I know there's a lot of interest. From, uh, if you're interested in price, the um, it's not a cheap foamy, but it, it's, a, it's a lot of foam for, for a plane, a lot of detail. You know, even the ESC unit is an expensive unit. It's, it's a quality unit. The motor, of course, would be the same. Uh, we're talking around $900 mark, or Australian dollars, that is, for the bind and fly version with its receiver. And then about $830 without the receiver. I don't know about you, but I'd be, I don't really use a lot of the AS3X functionality, you know, the gyro functionality. Sometimes I find that they're a bit sort of invasive. You can dial the gains down with an app, but um, I'd probably go with the PMP version because I've got plenty of receivers I could put into that plane. So there you have it. The E-Flight Draco uh, Ultimate Bush Plane. You might be able to hear my dog in the background again. Lulu's back, barking in the background, probably out the window. So that's how excited she's about the E-Flight Draco. So stay tuned. Plenty coming from E-Flight. They're just not in the country yet here in Australia. But go to your local hobby shop, tell them you want one, and see if they can pre-order one for you. E-Flight Draco. It's guest time, and this week's guest is Peter Ricks. Now, Peter Ricks is a gentleman that I met through Flat Out RC Magazine when I was publishing Flat Out RC Magazine. Uh, I invited him to write for me because he, he had been writing for Airborne and uh, predominantly around helicopters. Uh, but when I got to know Peter, he's a very versatile chap. He, he can fly helis and drones and fixed wing, loves building. So he's an all-around aero modeler. So I invited him to come on to the podcast just to hear his story. Uh, as I said, we don't always have the Martin Pickerings and the Jace Ducies of the world in this program. We have, you know, the average Joe modeler that has a story to tell. And sometimes their story is just as enjoyable to listen to as others. And Peter's is a, a great story. Been in the hobby for a long time. 
Um, you know, even worked at a hobby shop for a while, but he's been, you know, an avid writer in the magazines, loves reviewing products and sharing his knowledge. Uh, he, he's had some great uh, projects over the years, which we talk about, including grabbing an old craft radio and turning it to 2.4 gig, which I ended up, I, put, I wrote an article in the magazine about it, or he actually wrote it, I think, about it, his pathway to doing that. So over to my chat with great bloke, guy that helped me out a lot with Flat Out RC magazine, Peter Ricks. Joining us here on the Flat Out RC podcast is a friend of mine. A, we could always almost say that you're a colleague, Peter. It's Peter Ricks all the way from Gold Coast. Thanks for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I'm uh, quite happy to be here. Well, Peter, our relationship sort of started around the Flat Out RC magazine. And, uh, you know, we saw the Airborne magazine sort of fold, Flat Out RC come up. And you were writing for magazines. We're going to get into that. And I think I asked you to see whether you want to get involved. Well, I can't remember. Did you reach out to me or I reached out to you? I can't. You, you kind of outreached to me. Um, I don't think I'm quite photogenic enough for podcasting. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah, no. Well, you're very photogenic for a podcast. It's audio only. So, <laughs> but, but anyway, our, our, our relationship, if you will, started back then. But... I actually don't know a lot about you. So this is going to be a great journey that we can go on together. And this is what the whole idea of this podcast is all about, is sharing your story. So how did your aero modeling journey begin? Okay, well, I'll go back right to the very, very start. My mother said when I was a wee little kitty in a pram when she was wandering around in the very early 50s, she said that if there was anything flying in the air i was absolutely mesmerized by it anything that flew an airplane helicopter whatever it was i was absolutely and utterly mesmerized then when uh, we were in school i hate to say it but it was rather sexist because the boys got to build model gliders while the girls got to do sewing and home crafts unfortunately so uh, there's a very very young peter holding this um, chuck glider which is probably about three quarters my size and that's kind of where i started in, in sort of error modeling and it never really kind of took off because in the early days there wasn't much sort of radio and um, sort of i didn't know anybody who was in the error modeling field but what got me into it again my mum who uh trying to help me when i was freaking out going to a dentist one day spied a model airplane book in a shop in a news agent so she bought it and mate when i saw that it was um, uh, the american radio control modeler magazine which probably was the premier magazine back in 1969 that's basically the date that i started i think it was the august or september edition that's how exact that i can tell you that's when i got it i forgot all about the dentist didn't care what the dentist did i was mesmerized by the magazine 1970 bought my first radio and that was it off i went how old were you at this stage oh god i was a teenager Born in 53, so that would have been about 17. Okay. 
So 17 years of age, freaking out over the dentist, get a magazine. And, you know, that's the thing I love about magazines is that it has got magazines have really fostered a lot of people's hobby. Now, my my story is reading Airborne magazine and falling in love with the pictures and, and everything that was going on. And just, you know, I didn't even know where to buy a model. I just love this idea of model planes and radio control flight. So you've you got the bug from looking at the magazine. And then what was the next step after that, after the dentist appointment? Well, basically, I just read the magazine from cover to cover so many times that I could probably uh, quote you chapter and verse of every single page. And I just became addicted to the magazines. And I remember buying RCM, as it was called, um, Flying Models, which was another American one. Uh, RCM&D, Radio Control Models and Electronics, which was English. Um, airborne, uh, sorry, there was, uh, what is it, Aeroplane Models. But I wasn't that intrigued with it because they were they, they covered more free flight and control line, which I wasn't into. I really became a radio fanatic straight up. Um, I didn't sort of go through... As I said, other than when I was a very, very wee little boy, I didn't go through free flight, control line, graduating to radio. I just jumped straight into radio. And so you get the magazine. It's about 1970 you said you got a radio control kit. Now, you, you were based in Melbourne at that point in time? Uh, yes. Uh, no, no, no. I was, on the, uh, I was already on the Gold Coast, moved to, to uh, sunny Queensland in 1966. Oh, did you? Well, what, what, yes. How, how did you? Because you told me off air that you were born in Melbourne. That's right. But people move. I know. Oh, no, really, Peter. People people move. <laughs> but that would have been like, wouldn't that have been like the boom time in the Gold Coast when the Gold Coast was starting to emerge as a holiday destination and a lot of development going on? Was that the era? Or it was. It was. Yeah. I, basically, my mum brought me up here for my education because she was a single mum. My mum was widowed very early on. And um, so she was rearing me, and what she found was that one of the top ten schools in Australia was Church of England Grammar in Brisbane, and the fees were by far less than anything else around. So she said to me one day, do you want to go to sunny Queensland? And I said, yep, that's where we ended up. Yeah, that's amazing. The... Uh and so you get to, you're in Queensland, you've read this magazine, where'd you buy the radio from then your first plane? Okay, basically because I was getting RCM&D and I was looking at the American stuff and I didn't know too many hobby shops sort of like it. Actually, the first guy I ever met in the hobby area, hobby shop area, was Arthur Gorry. Gorry's Hobbies. I don't know if you know that gentleman, nah. but he's sort of one of the icons of Australian era modelling, he was uh, in a suburb called Wollongabba in Brisbane and he had this uh, hobby shop there that was there since Adam was in shorts and he it was just stacked to the rafters with things, you, you name it, he had it, but the hard part was finding it because it was a totally and utterly disorganised mess. Um, but, yeah, I bought a lot of my stuff 
from him. You know, I bought my sort of radio control motors from him, uh, bought all my balsa from him because I, I was very much into scratch building. I would get a, a plan and I kind of figured out how to, to build from plans. Or as I said, I had magazines that sort of guided me that gave me some ideas. And um, then I discovered um, Aeroflight. And my first um, successful radio control model was an Aeroflight Mark One Hustler really? converted to three channel. So that and was this is this early seventies? Yes, yes, yes. That was nineteen seventy 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 one was when I uh, got into with uh, the Aeroflight Hustler. That that was it. And uh, the radio was interesting. It was actually an English radio uh, called an RCS from Radio Control Specialists. That was the, the name of the company. And they were using American equipment, uh, Orbit servos, and they were sort of redesigning it with some English stuff because it was on 240 volts, which the American stuff wasn't. It was all on 110. So it was much easier for me to get the English radio. Plus, uh, I was probably a little bit shrewd because money was a bit tight. There was um, not as many import duties from England as there was from America. So when I imported it, basically it just sailed through customs because uh, for a very long time we had to pay customs and import if you were importing it from overseas. That's right. The, so th this hustle that you got, um, so what was, the, what was the mode you had in it? It was an OS... 30 RC. Gee, 30 C. Now, what, the, what What was the wingspan on those? Were they like 1.5? About 56-inch wingspan. Yeah, okay. And it, they're, they're actually being reproduced by, yeah, they're still available. Um, Perth RC knocked them out. Yeah, they had a few. I don't know whether he's still making them because he had a bit of a fire in his place. And I think yeah, he has had a fire, but he's sort of getting back into it again. But uh, I still see ads for you know, um, the, the hustlers, and there's still a lot on the second-hand market as well. You get a plan for it and easily build from a plan if you know a little bit about how to scratch build. It's not a very difficult aircraft. I've actually reproduced um, a clone of my original. I saw that. I was going to ask you about that one. That was one you did recently, wasn't it? Relatively yes. Yeah. Yes, I did that about uh, 18 months ago. I just had a little bit of a nostalgic uh, turn and, decided I would um, go back to my era modeling roots and I, I built my original Mark I Hustler um, with modern conversions. I don't like rubber bands on model aeroplanes. I'm sorry. I think that's archaic. Yeah, I'm not a big fan um, of them. I had a lot of issues with rubber bands. I remember taking off one day with only two rubber bands on the model and I was kind of surprised when there was about a two-inch gap between the model and the wing of the wing and the and the body of the aircraft, I thought, hmm, fortunately the rubber bands held. I got it down in one piece. So it taught me a lesson. So you built this Mark One Hustler way back, and then uh, how did you learn how to fly the plane? Did you go to a club? Or well, that's uh, because I was um, going to a hobby shop, and it was a great source of information. And Arthur basically introduced me to a chap by the name of Vic Miss Campbell who um, was a guy in Brisbane, and um, he was sort of uh, had been 
into the hobby for quite a while and he gave me the benefit of all his knowledge you know he was one who basically started teaching me i mean that's how this hobby sort of goes on you, you get someone who's more proficient helps someone who is less proficient and that's how this hobby basically just keeps snowballing bigger and bigger because everyone helps everyone else it's a fantastic side of this hobby um and that's what happened i was introduced to him and uh, we went out to um this uh literally paddock in the middle of nowhere in those days and we just started flying and uh, i was a member of arthur's club because there were some issues that suddenly cropped up where people were saying, oh, these people are flying uninsured. And they kind of tried to blame us. And I said, well, guess what? Here's a membership I have for the MAAQ. My M M MAAQ membership or MAAA membership dates back to 1970. My VH number, and I hate the AUS thing, my, I have VH, is 7565. That's how far back I go. Everyone else's number now is a five-digit, not mine. I've still got a four-digit. I wasn't one of the real early pioneers who had a, a three-digit number or yeah, less. Yeah, that would be, that'd be good, good badge to have, wouldn't it? The, oh, yeah. Um, so, okay, so, and then you, you had the hustler and what happened after that? Did you Well, we started learning with the hustler and if you ended up, with, came home with a model in one piece, you had a really fantastic day, reliability, uh, of the radios was iffy-ish. Um, actually, it was thinking back, it was always traced back to dud batteries. Batteries are always the issue. Yeah, we used NICADs in those days, and NICADs had a lot of nasty little issues that we took us a while to learn. But we crashed a few, we rebuilt a few. Um, and as I said, I was with this guy, Vic, and he basically said, look, you know, once we get past your three channel, you need to look to a four channel. And uh, again, I went through the magazines and I found a very nice, the next model I think I built was a thing called the Tory, um, which was a evolution of one of the, uh, of the Taurus, which was a Ed Kaminsky's design, an American guy, won a world championship. He designed a series of these things. And it, because it used the same size engine out of my Hustler. So we were able to just continue along those ways. So that's the way we went. Um, so I had the Taurus was my first four channel model. Then we went to something much bigger, which was the, from RCM magazine, which is a thing called the Professor, which was a, a quite a large aircraft for its day. And we flew that with a, 45 i think and um yeah so that that's sort of it's funny how you say uh you know a 45 was large and nowadays we'd consider like a you know an os 40 powered model is pretty small things just got bigger and bigger over the years haven't they oh i mean people are flying you know engines with cc's in the hundreds you know, 200 cc, 250 cc is commonplace. You know, I mean, I'd love to have an engine like that, but it's just a bit outside my price range. Yeah, they, moment, are, but, they are expensive. But why do you think that came about, though, that there was that, that shift to larger planes? Do you think it was reliability or things became more affordable? Or, uh, or reliability, power. You, you, as, as you stepped up in engine displacement, it seemed 
that the power went up much more exponentially, that you would get much more power out of a 40, 45, and we got into 60s, and they just had humongous grunt to what we were used to. And in the very early days, we only had mufflers. So um, also nitro wasn't that prevalent in Australia. So we were using basically castor oil was the, the standard fuel, methanol, and that was it. Um, and getting hold of nitro was, was difficult because only the drag dragster car people had those, uh, that fuel. So it was a little bit hard to get into it. And some of the engines we had, I remember having this beautiful Enya 60 um, which we were flying, and it kept what I called sneezing. It would be flying along beautifully, and then suddenly you would just literally like a human being go, sneeze, and it would throw the prop, spinner, everything straight off the front of the plane. Nine times out of ten, you couldn't find it. And eventually we I figured it out. It was because uh, it was designed for nitro. And we were running it on pure methanol oil, and it didn't like it. So we, we kind of learned a lesson from that because a lot of people in the old days, there was a lot of wives' tales out there. Oh, you know, nitro rusts motors and all the rest of it. Well, it doesn't. I'm an industrial chemist. I can prove chemically it cannot rust your motor. What does rust your motor is the methanol. If you leave it in there, it absorbs water. There's your rust source. Yeah, good point. Now, um, I, I've always intrigued to talk to people that were flying back in that era, and, and I, I consider you as being that still the relatively early days of radio controls. Uh, oh, look, we, we, I was there even when we saw Reed. There were still people using reeds. Yeah. And not a lot of people know what reeds are. No, but... How many how many planes would you see crash on an average weekend if you went to the flying club? Oh, could be half a dozen. In the, in the early days that we flew, we flew on twenty seven megs, and there were six channels, right? And you had a peg on a board, and if and it was also associated with a colour. And basically, if you could get the peg, you're allowed to turn your transmitter on, go flying. So basically, there were sort of these six channels. So the most you could ever have in the air was six planes at any one stage. But it, but also, what happens is people used to sort of fly on channel one, two, three to six, then go back to one. I was always on six. So it was funny. I remember a couple of days, channel one would go up, crash. Channel two would go up. Crash, channel three, etc., and went right up the six. I'd fly and I got away with it. I got it down on one piece, and everyone gives me a dirty look because I was the only one who hadn't crashed that day. Yeah, but like, it, it's just, it's unheard of now. Like, when we go to a flying field now, we expect that we're coming home with everything because the reliability is so much better. But oh, look, it's superb. It is superb. And as I said, in the early days, if you went home with a model in one piece, you had the most fantastic day. I kept the diary for a very short time and I got very, very um, demotivated because I would sort of put in a, you know, three or four flights, crash, rebuild, three or four flights, crash, rebuild. I stopped at the diary. I said, nah, nah, no, thank you. <laughs> it's too depressing. That's an interesting concept because a lot of people, not a lot of people, there's there's certain people that think that you know the good old days were way back then kind of thing when people used to build models, 
But from what I can tell, not just from you, but from other people, yeah, you built a model and you go and fly it and it was hit or miss whether it was going to come home in one piece. And then all that hard work that you went to is just gone in, in minutes. And then you're back to the drawing board to rebuild it or build another kit. So uh, I, exactly. can, I can see why ARS and foamies came about because then it just made that component a lot easier than, uh, than having to just constantly you know, build a kit or scratch build a plane and just go for it. Yeah, but it was funny how times were different. I mean, I was at school when I was at uni, but I remember one Friday night deciding I would build an ugly stick. And, and by Sunday afternoon, other than being covered, I had built an ugly stick Yeah. from scratch, not from a kit, from just a little bit of paper. And I built the whole thing, cut it, glued it together, and, at the end, and yeah, as I said, basically Friday night to Sunday afternoon, it was ready, and then it took me about a week to paint it. That's pretty good going, really, because I started to scratch build a, a small stick, and um, and I think that started about seven years ago, and it's still not finished. So you're doing really, you're doing better than me. <laughs> well, you've got to wait for the glue to dry. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's almost dry. You know the weather down here in Melbourne, it's a bit up and down. <laughs> so, I don't know. One day, look, it's, it's a retirement uh, project, that one. I've still got all Yeah, because we all. didn't have super glue in those days. You have to oh. remember. But for me, the, the, the great glue that I fell in love with because, again, Vic taught me, that, hey, there's this new glue that's come out. It's called five-minute epoxy. You've got an A part and a B part, mix it together in equal quantities. Five minutes later, it's set. Yeah. Oh, a number of times we're out the field, we would re-glue an aeroplane on the field with five-minute epoxy and go fly it again. I remember building kits in the 80s with the Aeroflight glue. You know, the, yes. the bolts of cement. C-23. That's the C-23. one. C-23. And I remember sitting there going, oh, when's this thing going to dry? And then, then you know, CA came about and I was like, well, wait a second. Actually, when I was building this stick, the scratch-built stick. See, I'm a scratch-builder, Peter. I was building scratch-built stick and i was gluing all the wings together and i'm literally just dabbing this ca you know across all the joints i think i had the whole wing glued in in literally four minutes yep and it was dry ready to go yeah it was so when when super glue came out and the first one was called hot stuff that's right i remember seeing the ads that was the early that was the first one that was really commercially available was hot stuff and the next one that came out was a thing called Zap. And it was so funny. The guys who were selling hot stuff used to hate people saying, oh, let's just zap it. Well, <laughs> because they wanted everyone to say, oh, let's just hot stuff it. You know, and that's why it was called hot stuff because it, when it went off, it also got very hot. If, it got, if you got it on your fingers when it went off, you almost burnt That's things. right. It's very, very hot. I still think, I'd love to know, you might know, what's this chemical reaction that's going on in that glue to set it off so quickly? But obviously the byproduct is heat because uh, it does um, it does get hot. It's, it's Well, it was originally developed for the Vietnam War for, for literally gluing wounded soldiers back together again to stop the bleeding. And the glue is actually set off by moisture. You can set it off with an accelerator, which does a chemical reaction. But if you want, if you haven't got that, you can do it with a little bit of surface activation, which is just literally dust, also dust. Put a bit of that on the joint. That will set it off. The other way to set it off is blow on it because your breath has moisture in it. 
Yeah, I've heard. Still also heard that. Up. Not quite as quick, but it will help. Yeah. Okay. So, I always say that people you know, generally they get in the hobby, they learn how to fly on something basic, but they start to form a, a sort of a direction that they go in. So that direction could be gliders or scale or aerobatics. You know, did you have a direction you went down, or were you sort of more of a general? I was just right across the spectrum. If it flew, I was interested. I probably spread myself too thin looking back. But, I mean, I would fly airplanes. Um, I would fly mainly sort of sport planes. I got into aerobatics, um, did seaplanes because that was a lot of fun. Um, we did gliding, um, thermal and slope soaring. Slope soaring was really a big buzz. We, we did a lot of slope soaring because in the old days there wasn't as much development, there was a lot more slopes available to us, the regulations weren't as nasty as they are now but where you can and can't go flying. Um, I dabbled in pylon, I dabbled in just about everything. Um, I had a, an initial dabble with, with helicopters way back when. A um, friend of mine went to Europe and said, do you want me to bring anything back? And I just jokingly said, well, if you find a helicopter, bring one back. Well, he did. And it was one by Grautner, a Bell 47 fixed-pitch helicopter. And uh, that was interesting to try to fly that with a four-channel radio with no mixing, no gyro, and no anything. Oh, gee. Yeah, tell me a bit about that, though. What was it like um, flying that? Because we now with all these aids that we see in helis, even though helis are still not the easiest things to fly, but a lot easier than they than they ever were. Well, yeah. I mean, in the old days, it, it, we had sort of, all, as I keep saying, there were all these old wives' tales. When gyros came out for helicopters, all the old hands said, oh, look, don't use them because if they fail, you'll, your helicopter will crash. You know, learn how to fly without a gyro. Well. When I first got a gyro and put it on my helicopter, I said, hey, this thing's the best thing since sliced bread. And I just stuck with it. I said, forget it. I said, this thing, if, it, if I lose gyro, it's going to crash anyway because it was a very simple equation in model helicopters. If it went wrong, it just crashed. Um, so we were really good at rebuilding again because, you know, in the old days, there was no one there to help you. So this is it. You've got such a big pool of people now and electronics and uh, Facebook and simulators and everything else that you can use as a source of information and practice. But in the old days, practice was you went out to the field and you hoped like crazy you, you could take little tiny baby steps and learn how to do it without, you know, smashing it big time. It's interesting you talk about that, that, you know, that passing down of the knowledge that really supports people's hobby that, you know, we've all learnt from somebody else when you think about it, whether it be uh, reading a magazine and about you know how to tune your engine or uh, uh, how to build a bit better and uh, you know reviews of models and and then through the flying field where you got your instructor and uh, your friends and whatever. And nowadays we have information everywhere. We can really, you know, if I want to find out about the latest model, I just go to the internet. If I want to, if I want to know how to cover a model airplane, I can watch one of you know thousands of videos that somebody's done on how to cover a plane. Whereas 
you know, I sort of got interested in the hobby in the 80s, like the, 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 the mid-80s, and it was just the magazines. But even then, because we, we didn't have the internet, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to, how to, you know, what I had to do really because I didn't have the people around me. So it was just a bit of trial and error back then. That's but right. It is important and, you know, that's why, you know, it's one of the things that I like about some of the stuff that I've done with the Flat Out RC brand. It's about just giving people, help, helping people along their journey in the hobby in, in various different ways, whether it be writing a review for a, on a model or doing the podcast and sharing people's stories and and uh, things like that. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's something that sort of, I never really thought about in the way that you've expressed it, but it's really, uh, it's really a, a big part of it. Yeah, it, it's the way of – it's the camaraderie when you go out to a flying field. I do it quite a bit at our local club. Is that when you go out there, you're you're tinkering with your model or sitting there having a cup of coffee, whatever, watching. You see someone else is having some issues. Nine times out of ten, people will go over and help, or someone isn't going over to help because they're not sure. I, I remember a couple of times I went over to people and said, "Look, the reason your engine's not running properly is that your glow plug is like a spark plug in a car. It has a definite life." And when the motor stops, especially or slows down when you take the glow off, that's a good sign your plug's stuffed and you've got to put a new one in. And so many people didn't understand this. They had plugs in there and they thought they would, if it glowed, it worked. Well, yes, that's true, but it's like a spark plug. It breaks down under load. And that's where the issue was. But when you're flying electrics, you don't have that issue. No, I don't know. But, you know, it's funny, um, I was at the field last weekend and uh, I'd landed my plane. There was another guy up in the air, um, hadn't been up in the air for very long, I don't think. And I was literally going to take my plane off the uh, off the runway kind of thing. And he says to me, I've lost it. I've got nothing. And he was pretty high. He was, he was flying some nitro trainer-ish kind of plane. And he's like, and I'm looking at his transmitter going, okay, is he mode one or two? Because I'm mode two. And, you know, when I worked out his mode one, I went, oh, I can't, there's no point in me grabbing the transmitter. I'll, I'll crash it quicker. Anyway, he it ended up plonking into the ground. It was miles away. Anyway, he went off to look for it. He came back and he said, uh, he was covered in, he's, I said, did you find it? I said, I think it was over that mound there where the creek is. He said, yeah, I found it. It was in the creek. Like there's this creek near the field. <laughs> and yep. it's pretty open paddocks, but there's a creek in the field. Anyway, he said, I had to walk into this field. And he, he said, oh, look at me. I'm soaked. And he, up to his knees, he was just soaked. And the plane was covered in mud and it was wet and everything. And I said to him, what do you think happened? Like, I said, Well, the first thing I said to him is, "Did you were your batteries charged? You know, the receiver pack. And he said, oh, yeah, I checked it last week or something. It was at 90%, I think. And he showed me the pack and I went, I looked at the pack and went, where does this pack come from? I've never seen something like it. You know, it was funny, funny kind of nickel metal hydride pack. And I said, look, 99% of a lot of these times, you know, it's your, radio, it's your battery going flat in the aeroplane. And, and, and my tip to him was always charge your battery before you come to the field to make sure that, it's going to be okay. Don't think because last week it was showing at 90% that when you turn up, it's going to be okay. 
because you never know what happened that week and what the state of the battery was. And when the battery's under load, it pulls more volts out and then it drops it below the you know receiver minimum That's and right. grounds out and blah, blah, blah. And I had a why I know that because I did the same thing. I, well, I had a battery pack that was too old that I put in the plane that obviously wasn't holding charge and went flat and, you know, after the second flight or something and I lost the model very early on. But, um, but yeah, if nobody went up to him and said, did you check this? Did you do that? The guy probably would continue to make the same mistake. And that's why I don't mind it if somebody comes up to me in the field and gives me a, gives me a tip. But, you know, as you know now, Peter, I know everything. But <laughs> the, but the, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, and and you're right in saying that there. I've I've been to lots of clubs and the members and the, the the fraternity seems to be really there and quick to offer advice. Sometimes too quick, but there's plenty of people there that have got some knowledge and and can and can pass it on. So yeah, yeah. But everyone wants to help. You just got to be careful with some of the help because sometimes, as I keep saying, there's a there's a lot of old wives' tales in this hobby. Unfortunately. Because um, I remember in the early days when mobile phones came around, people would, had a crash. Oh, it was a mobile phone that crashed me. So uh, the edict came out: you cannot use a mobile phone while flying. That's and right. And I just sort of laughed because the frequency of the mobile phone is so far away from where we were, and the the power of the mobile phone was bugger all. But yeah, but but people had a an excuse why it crashed. Oh, it was a mobile phone that someone had in his pocket was using. That's the reason I crashed, not because the, they dumb thumbed it into the ground or something else went wrong. Well, at my local club, there's this thing going on about um, a metal f- safety fence in the pilot's box, and whether it acts like a Faraday cage, which you know interrupts the radio frequency signals and causes the interruption because. A few people lost their planes, and of course, they all jump up and down and say it was radio interference. Well, as we said to some of the people, a few of us, that first of all, you're not in a cage. You know, a Faraday cage is literally a cage, like a bird's cage. It's just yep. a little fence that comes up to mid thigh height. Right, so you're standing right above it. They did some testing, and it, and they couldn't couldn't create interference. But some people thought, nah, they're going to do their own test. Uh, but when a plane goes in like that, there are so many different components that could fail that could lead to the same outcome. You know, the batteries go flat, the receiver carks it, the servos, a servo's gone, um, you know, a, a servo connection has failed, um, you know, all sorts of different things. And so I say, you know, if you're going to really try to want to really determine what went wrong, you're going to have to do a very forensic exploration and good luck with that because your plane is in like a million pieces now. But, you know, if you want to take it seriously, then write down straight away exactly what happened, where you were, how many flights of the day, the weather conditions, the sun position, where you were standing at the field, who else was in the air, what radio gear were you running, etc., etc., etc. And then you can start saying that it was interference. But I don't think that we that we'd suffer from this interference because if if Joe Blow's plane went in and there's interference at the field or something, then the next person's plane should have gone at the same time. Every you will find that to be a much more prevalent problem. It is not. But it's funny. We People have egos. They don't like saying, I dumb-thumbed it into the ground or I did something wrong or I forget forgot to uh, plug the aileron servo extension lead in and took off without ailerons because they didn't check every control 
you know, there's any number of these things yeah. that happen. People are very quick to blame everything else. But, you know, it's, it's interesting is when I build my model aeroplanes, what I'm looking for is reliability. So if I've got to spend an extra $100 to make the plane reliable, for me, I have to have peace of mind that this plane is reliable. But if it's not, I'm scared to fly it. And I'm and I'm waiting for it to crash. Like I've got a I've got a model at the moment, a, a Sebart Mythos smallish pattern plane, and the, the the airframe's great. Like it flies beautifully. But I've got this motor on it. It's an OS electric motor, and it had like a, a clamp mount prop adapter. You know where you clamp it down onto yep. the shaft. Yep. And the thing keeps on. I I lost the prop and the spinner again on the weekend. Didn't bother going looking for it, but. I've that prop has fallen off so many times now. And so every time I fly it, I'm paranoid that I'm going to lose the prop, right? So I've got two options now. I'm either going to change the motor to something that doesn't have that kind of mechanism on it, or I'm going to sell the whole thing because I don't want to own this model that's going to have a problem. And is that one component that I know keeps on bugging me, right? And yeah. so I know now that most of my models, when I go to the field, I'm not going to have, I should not have a technical issue with them. In saying that with you know a new model, I'll then go through the airframe after the first flight, second flight, double check things. Like I, I was flying my big 100cc aerobatic plane the other weekend. And after the second flight, I, I just went around all the servo horns to make sure that they hadn't come loose. right? Because the plane's only probably eight flights old. And so I thought, I better check this. I, I actually pulled the cowl off after the maiden flight, you know, when I took it home to, to double check everything to make sure everything was where it should be and, you know, that the fuel tubing wasn't rubbing against the exhaust and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and sometimes you pick up on things, but you have to learn to be, I think, meticulous to minimize the chance of things going wrong. And actually, I said something to somebody, something to the, some, I said something to somebody at the field the other day, where I said, why is it that it's all the clunker of planes that keep on crashing and the ones that keep on claiming interference? It's never that really nice model where people were meticulous in the selection of the gear and how they built it and the maintenance. They're not having the problems. Funny coincidence, right. isn't it? Yes, yes. So yes. now. Uh, Another, speaking of funny coincidences, you and I met through magazine, um, you know, the Flat Out RC magazine, and, and yep. I knew your name from Airborne magazine. So you, you got into sort of the the journalism side of the hobby. How did that actually come about? Okay. Um, do you remember the name of a chap called Murray Scott? I've heard of the name, but no. He, was, uh, he lived in Adelaide, South Australia, somewhere. Uh, Murray um, started a magazine. I think it was called Australian Radio Control Modeler. I know who you're ARC. talking. Yep, I know who you're talking about. Um, his his son um, flies gliders, and he's and the grandson is Hamish Scott, who flies helicopters. Yep, no, right. Is. Yep, had right. Hamish on the podcast. Well, what transpired? Um, I had gotten into model helicopters and was just sort of dabbling and just having some fun, you know, but not sort of really progressing. When I found out that there was going to be the first ever world championships for model helicopters in a place called London, Ontario in Canada. We're going back to 86, 1986. And 
I basically decided, oh, let's, you know, have a go. So I contacted the MAAA and found out, you know, how do you get on World Champs teams and all the rest of it, and they explained the process. Everything was so young that not a lot of people had organised much in the way of the helicopter side of things, and as it turned out, nobody was interested in going except me. And because I was the only one, the MAAA said, you're it, you can go, we'll, you know, pay your fee and... and tell the FAI body that Peter X is going to be uh, representing Australia at the first World Helicopter Championship. So I said, great, fantastic. And somehow Murray found out that I was going. And um, one Saturday morning, I got a phone call at home and it was uh, Murray. And he said, look, I would like you if you would cover the first World Helicopter Championships for me because I heard you're going over. Would you be prepared to do it? I said, yeah. He said, I can't afford to pay you very much. I said, well, that's not an issue. Uh, He said, but I'll give you all the film. Now, in those days, film was worth its weight in gold. You know, to buy a roll of film, you know, it was quite an expense and then you had to get it developed and all the time and everything else. So I thought, hey, this is going to be great. You know, so he ended up sending me something like about, two dozen rolls of colour film, 36 exposure colour film, and I thought I'd just won the lotto. You know, I thought, wow, this is, you know, fortune here in film. So basically I went to um, the World Championships and I kind of kept a a bit of a diary as I was doing it all of, of how I went and all the things that happened and sort of came back and, um, sent Murray all the unexposed film because he said, look, don't get it developed. I will develop it for you and I'll send you a free set of prints. And I said, fantastic. And and I developed the habit of every roll of film had a piece of paper wrapped around it with a rubber band where every photograph was labelled. And I just got into this habit in a very early on stage. And Murray said that was the most brilliant thing he's ever seen, was that when he developed these rolls of film, he knew exactly what each photo was. I'd have photo one was Joe Bloggs with this helicopter, this radio, blah, 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 blah. I had everything all neatly catalogued for him. And that's basically how I started. And he took my notes and basically published my notes and then said, look, I haven't got a helicopter columnist. Would you like to write a helicopter column for me? And that's how I started. And I thought, well, that's fantastic because if you've also heard the way I like to do things is I like to put something back into the hobby. So if I know something, if I can do something and I see someone else is having issues or, you know, they could maybe do something a bit better, I'm happy to help them out. I think that's part of this hobby because I was always told that as I become an expert, I will start teaching beginners. And that's how this hobby basically self-sustains itself. And I think it's brilliant. It's fantastic. So that's how I got into writing. And I wrote for Murray for some years until... For whatever reason, I think he wanted to retire or he wanted to get out of it. Um, he closed the magazine down. And um, a little bit later, after that, I wrote for um, uh, the Greens. 
they started the magazine up. RCM News. Yes, yes, and I wrote wrote for them. And uh, I again was the, the helicopter columnist for them for quite a while. And um, uh, I take it this is this can all be edited out, can't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well, well. I will. I was replaced for what I thought was a very inaccurate, wrong reason um, by another modeler who I regarded as a very good person. Ian McDonald, I don't know if you know Ian. He's from yeah. Sydney. Okay. Ian was um, the current, or oh, he was, for many years, he was the uh, top F3C pilot in Australia. He just won everything you know, across the board. And they wanted Ian to write for them. And they gave me a particular excuse why they didn't want me to write, which I thought was totally inaccurate and incorrect. They just said, look, we've got Ian to write for us and we would like to replace you with Ian. I would have said, I've got no issues with that because I knew Ian was a you know, very capable pilot and all the rest of it, but uh, I don't like being told stories which are untrue. That's all I'm going to say. But then you, you, so, went, you went to Airborne magazine, didn't you, after that? Well, what happened was, I, I, yeah, I stopped writing. Obviously, because I had no magazine to write for. Max Tandy had been writing for Airborne for quite a while. That's right. I don't remember that name. And, uh, well, Max is probably the godfather of Australian model helicopters because he got into it right at the beginning and his knowledge was encyclopedic on issues. I, I remember I was at a Nationals. I was in South Australia and I had this weird problem on a helicopter and it was just when mobile phones had come out and I had bought one and I ran in from the flying field. I got this issue, Max. I said, I'm desperate to try to find a solution. With a single sentence, he solved my issue. His knowledge was just so brilliant, you know. Anyway, Max was also the Excel dealer and, of course, he would promote his product which was an excellent product. It's like Mercedes, you know, it's a really good product. There's nothing wrong with it. But there's also other very good products out there like Porsches and Ferraris and Holdens and Fords and all the rest of it. Um, so but they didn't get that big a look in. So anyway, eventually Max retired and uh, Nick Caboffi took over. You know Nick? He's in Melbourne. No, Nah, He's semi-retired pretty much now, but he, he used to be the Australian Horobo dealer many, many, many years ago. Then he became the Schluter dealer, or was it the other way around? Anyway, uh, he wrote for Airborne for quite a while, and I think he wanted to sort of stop. And then John Rogers said, oh, Federico knows how to write. So John rings me up and says, look, I'd like you to take over from um, so-and-so and, -so and uh, would you be prepared to write from the next edition? I said, sure. And that's how I got in with John. And how long did you write for Airborne? Oh, God, years and years and years. It was in the 90s that I got in with him. Oh, really? So it's probably 20 years at least. Oh, it was a quite, quite a while. 
quite a while. And I remember, like, I've got a lot of old airborne magazines, and you used to write on on all sorts of things. You, you know, you wrote all the heli stuff, but you did some on, some on electronics, and, and I even I think drones. You got into the drone thing a, a little bit as well, very early on. Yeah, I, well, see, where I was, where I came, my sort of thinking was. I would like to cover the spectrum as broadly as possible to make it interesting for the readers. And the feedback I got was that people said, look, I may not fly helicopters, but I always like reading your column because it was interesting. That's true. You made it sound interesting and it was factual. And I always said to people, if I ever write something and you think I'm wrong, pick me up on it. Show me what you think's right. We'll discuss it out. Yeah. And I've only ever had one guy who tried to, to pick on a particular thing, and he was just so far out of left field wrong that he had no idea, but he couldn't be convinced. He was one of these flat earth type people. Yeah. And I had so many people back me up who said, no, 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 Peter's correct. This is actually what it is, and this other guy just could not see it. But anyway, that's life. It, it happens, and oddly enough, I never left lost any sleep over it. Yeah, well, um, Brian Winch, who used to, of course, was well known for his writing magazines. He said to me once that there's one guy. He he's I got an email from a reader, and he was claiming that you know if you know get rid of Brian Winch, I'm not reading your magazine anymore. And I wrote back to him and said, Brian's a friend of mine which means you're going to have to not read my magazine and that is okay. I, I won't I won't cry about the $5 that I missed out on getting from you. That is fine. And I told Brian and Brian said, oh, I know this guy. He's been on my case for the last 20, 30 years. You know, he thinks I don't know what I'm talking about and he's that guy that is just out to get me because he, he doesn't agree with anything that I have to say even though he's at the field with all these engine problems and I tried to help him once and he doesn't listen to me and he just has his beanies bonnet about me for years. And like you just said, he goes, I don't lose any sleep over him. I said, well, Brian, I'm on your team and I told him to go away if he doesn't like reading the magazine because I'm not getting rid of Brian Winch from my magazine ever. And uh, yep. and I didn't. I didn't, you know, from, from the day dot. But uh, there's always you're always going to need detractors. I, I'd get messages from people like complaining that I use the word gasser instead of petrol. And I wrote back and said, "Look, it's just an industry term that we refer to these these to differentiate the the nitro from the the petrol, you know, gases. Is we use the word gases. OS called it a gasser. DA called it a gasser. DLE called it a gasser. You know, it was just a, 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 an international term to categorize that. Yeah, there were that some model. just names that just stick. Yeah, and so to me, it wasn't a big deal whether I call it gasser and so no, I kept on calling it gasser because as soon as you say gasser, people know exactly what you're talking about." You know, if I say petrol, they go what nitro or or what? I yeah, don't know. That's it's, nitro. It's ambiguous. It's ambiguous. But gasser is it's gasoline. Yeah. So I didn't. I just had a bit of a laugh to myself. Went okay. There's Look, always you can't please every person all the time. Yeah. You know, nah. Well, I just find that people have their own baggage that they're carrying in their head, and sometimes I just like to you know think that they need to complain about stuff to make them feel, make themselves feel better. But you know what the funny thing is? I produce what ten issues of the magazine. I probably would have got two complaints, one about the petrol and one about Brian Winch in, in, in two and a half years of doing the magazine. I was like, yep. okay, I'll take that. You know, I just found the whackers and 
good luck to them. I hope they're enjoying themselves. Yeah. But uh, yeah. so then, so you stuck out with Airborne, and then I think I got onto you because I was looking for people to write, and of course, yeah. I'd been reading your articles, and like you just said, that um, I was into Hellies, and so I read, you know, about two thousand and seven, I got into Hellies, bought Airborne again, started reading about the, the Helly articles you're writing, the reviews, but then. And I sort of started to broaden myself into fixed wing a bit more. Um, I still kept on reading your articles because, yeah, like you said, they were interesting to read. And then, but when when you joined Flat Out RC, you you took a more of a broad brush approach because we weren't really talking about helis because there wasn't much happening in the heli scene by that stage. Got a bit quieter, and but you started writing about fixed wings again. But one of the one of the interesting articles, I think, one of the most memorable articles that you wrote. And I think you, I asked you to say, "Hey, Peter, you want to write something? And you got any ideas?" And um, you wrote about this craft radio conversion. Tell us about that. Okay, um, uh, going back into the good old days, you know, we used to do a lot of pattern flying, and it was really interesting to fly old F three A pattern. You know, fixed uh, wing aerobatics. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it depends on how you go. The the aerobatic scene has evolved to a point where some of the aircraft basically are like F1 racing cars. They're ultra exotic, ultra expensive, <clears throat> and they fly a schedule that I don't particularly like. And I'm not the only one, and, and there's been a movement started in America, of course, where a lot of these things start with what they call classic pattern, where they go back to aircraft before the turnaround came, which was in the 90s approximately. Anyway, um, and they just like to go with the old style of aircraft. <clears throat> but the radios in those days were pretty unreliable. But I thought, wouldn't it be a lot of fun if you took an old radio, and I had seen this done with other people, and basically gut the whole radio and put inside it a modern 2.4 gig radio. From the outside, it looks like a 1970s craft radio. But inside, is the latest and greatest 2.4 gig technology. And it was just done for a laugh. Now, I'm not an electronics whiz. No way, shape, or form. Positive and negative can cause me issues. I have done all sorts of very interesting things with electricity. Well, batteries, not electricity. I'd stay away from that. But anyway, I thought, if I have a go and just keep things simple, Let's see what happens. So literally, it was just take one radio guts out of a plastic box and put those guts into a metal box. Insulate as necessary. And I'll tell you what, when I first turned on that switch, my hand was shaking because I didn't know that it's going to be a big blue smoke appearing. That magic smoke, which once it appears, you've got to capture it and push it back in, otherwise the radio or whatever won't work again. And it worked. And I was just so abuzz by it that you could just quite simply do it without 
oscilloscopes without access to electronic whizzes and all that sort of caper. It was just done with stuff that a, what I would consider a normal modeler would have in their workshop, which is to a decent set of tools, a soldering iron, a little bit of mouse, and just did things very carefully and slowly. I basically measured twice, cut once. And that's what I did, and I made the thing work, and it's just been brilliant. And I've got a, uh, an airframe that I'm trying to finish, a Quickfly Mark III, which was designed by Phil Kraft, who was also the manufacturer of Kraft radios. He was the only guy who has ever been who designed not only his own aircraft, but his own radio and his own engine. Yes, so you can buy a Kraft. So you've got all these Kraft quick fly series type aircraft, of which there are many. You've got Kraft radios, of which there are many different varieties. And then he produced the Kraft engine. So that everything had the magic word Kraft on it. Um, yeah, it was like um, Jack Brabham when he made uh, his cars. Yeah, he, right. he designed everything from the ground up. Repco built everything from, I don't think he had any imported part on the whole car. He was the only driver in the world who ever designed, built his own car and won a world championship with his own car. And that's what Phil Kraft did in the modeling sphere. So that's what I did. I just sort of wanted to see, can it be done? And I proved it could be done without, as I said, without any exotic tools, without anything particularly unusual. And I said to people, look, have a go. It's not particularly difficult. I just use stuff I had on hand. And look, you can just have something really nice that looks classic, yet it's modern on the inside. So you've got the best of all worlds. Yeah, it's true. And that's where it came from. Well, <laughs> What I didn't know of you from reading things like Airborne Magazine is how much into building you actually are. What are some of the big building projects that you've done over the years? Oh, God. Um, I pretty much have built everything. Probably the, the pinnacle of my building was going back into the very early 80s. I can't remember the chap's name but he turned out to be a real snake in the grass. There was a guy, I think he was English, who'd come out to Australia, emigrated to Australia, and he started up this um, sort of jamboree type of um, fly-in. And his first one was in Sydney. And the idea was that you would dress up in period costume, you would have a diorama, that would suit your model aeroplane. And yeah, you'd, it, and his first one probably had about 20 odd people or 15 people that all had these beautiful scale aeroplanes and they were dressed up as World War I pilots or World War II pilots or whatever that's, that's kind of suited. And then he made this huge contest down in Melbourne and basically the bigger it was the better the more complex it was the better so a friend of mine and i decided we'll have a go and so we said okay how complex can we find a model or an aircraft that 
to reproduce. So we said, okay, biplane, yep, lots of biplanes, multi-engine, that's good. How many can we find? And we discovered that Qantas in the 30s used a four-engine de Havilland airliner, which was the Singapore to Australia run, Singapore to Sydney. That's where they used it. It's called a Diana-class airliner, the H-86. So we built one of those and we decided how big could we make it? I had a Ford Falcon station wagon at that stage, so I got a tape measure, measured from the inside of the front windscreen to the back of the tailgate, seven foot six. I hate to say that it was in the old days. So we built it with the fuselage seven foot six long. We had a four engine biplane, it's only about 130, 140 inch wingspan. The wings came off it like you would on a modern aerobatic plane. They were actually, uh, it was almost this, I, I probably predated what people had done. I had them on tubes so they would just come off like glider wings. Yeah. And we had this four engine biplane and we turned up and people were just gobsmacked by this thing because they'd just never seen anything that big with four engines on it. And, um, yeah, we, we sort of were dressed up as Qantas pilots and all the rest of it. And I think we came sixth in that competition. Which, And then what we found was that the guy had set this whole thing up for um, fraud because uh, on the it's finished on a Sunday, Monday morning, he leaves the country owing people tens of thousands of dollars oh, really yes he took all the money that he had um basically accumulated had put off paying the bills until after the competition and everything else the local club in melbourne had spent a fortune doing up their field and all the rest of it and he kept saying yeah i'll pay i'll pay you i'll just gotta wait till i get all the money in and then you know we'll, we'll fix it all up on the week after the competition is finished and when we, all the winners were given checks, because that was the way in those old days, well, every check bounced. And, um, yeah, he, I think he ended up owing something over $50,000, which in those days was a huge amount of money. But the cops said, look, he, we've tracked him to South Africa. It's just not worth going there just for 50000 They weren't interested. So that, that was probably the sort of the most big, Thing that I had ever built was this DH-86 Diana class airliner, as it was called. It still exists. Qantas owns it. I did a deal with Qantas, and um, I, I, I finagled a, a flight to America and back. And um, it uh, last time I saw it was hanging up in the international terminal in Brisbane Airport. Oh, okay. There you go. A little piece of history hanging up there. Yes. Yes. Well, the, um, where are you flying now? What, what club are you a member of? I'm a member of the Gold Coast Model Flying Club. Oh, yeah, at the back of the Gold Coast there. Yeah, yeah. We basically fly the other side of the Hens Dam, uh, which we also fly off the Hens Dam once a month. We do a bit of flight flying. And um, kind of as the helicopters have sort of um, diminished somewhat, I've sort of gone back to my original fixed-wing routes and I'm getting back into that. And I happen to have a love of 
anything to do with Australia, I like Australian-related aircraft. So if I build something, is there something I can put Australian Rego on it or something? For example, I've just acquired a PBY Catalina, a Dynam kit. I, I picked that up and I thought, right, um, okay, we, we used them in World War II. The RAF had them and they called them Black Cats. That was their nickname. So I did some research, found out all about it. So I painted this thing black, put on Australian World War II roundels, and now I have a, a, a scale Australian aircraft. And I've got a few other things that I want to build, again, that will have, be related as much as possible to Australian-type aircraft, although I also have a, a love of German aircraft. My, you, you ask me what's my ultimate plane if I win the lotto? It will be an ME262 twin turbine. I've got, I'm, I'm a bit of a way there. I've picked up a very nice prototype kit that model engines, when they were going, they were importing these kits from China. And one of the guys that was working there who ended up working in the hobby shop I worked in up here, he acquired this ME262 because this company in China sent out these prototypes for evaluation and then went bust. So I've now got this very, very nice ME262 kit, which basically it's an ARF. It's, it's painted, it's ready to go. All it needs is radio turbines and a letter rip. Yeah, okay. So you're almost there. You mentioned you work in a hobby shop. How long did you work in a hobby shop for? Oh, probably six, seven years or more. What was that like? Very good. I really loved it. Um, I always enjoyed people coming in with an idea. I want to do this or I want to do that. Or, you know, I've got this issue and I'm going to buy these bits. And then I sort of say, look at them and said, hang on, if you buy those bits, you can do it this way, which could be a better solution if you want to do it. I just liked being able to help people with their needs where they had a modelling need that, you know, they couldn't work it out or they were trying to do something. And then you'd have to say, well, sorry, what you want doesn't exist, but you can make it and you can make it using the bits which we have in stock. And a lot of people used to come in looking for me because they said, oh, you're the guy who thinks outside the square and tries to figure out what will actually work yeah. rather than just someone selling me a bit and saying, next customer, please. Because I'd rather have you go away happy that you've got an idea on what to do. If I haven't sold you everything, so be it. Yeah. Um, but I'm not out there just to sell stuff. If you're going to come back and say, well, that didn't bloody work, um yeah that's the way i am it's just that i want to put things back in the hobby and that's why i was always interested in writing and always interested at the field to go and help people i'm an instructor as well i mean and uh an overweight aircraft inspector i know i'm overweight i've got to lose my own life <laughs> so I'm, I'm i like that overweight <laughs> model certified it's good yeah i took i took it literally by being overweight as well yeah so did i you know it's, <laughs> sometimes it happens but you know the bigger models fly better apparently yes yes well that's right and the bigger it is the better and um 
I've always owned vehicles from pretty much day one that have been either a hatchback or a station wagon because I just need the room for my toys. That's right. It's amazing. It's amazing just on that point how we avid aero modelers really adapt our, our lives to suit the hobby. You know, we need bigger sheds, we need bigger garages and all that kind of stuff. Why do we need it? Just for our model aeroplanes, don't we? My auntie my auntie yes. said to me, I was talking to my auntie tonight and, and she said, you know, I always joke that she's going to come and live in my back garden shed. And and I said to her, she said, oh, where do you keep your aeroplanes? In, in, in my shed? I said, no, that shed's not good enough for my aeroplanes. I'm, I'm reserving that for my auntie to come and live in. My aeroplanes, you know, need to stay in air-conditioned comfort inside the garage. So, so then that's no, that's for you. you you've got that. But I suppose- my, my Walter Mitty dream, if you can speak of a Walter Mitty dream, are you familiar with the American um, broadcaster Jay Leno? Yes. Okay. Got He's- plenty of cars. Yes. Yeah. I want to do exactly what he's done with model airplanes. Oh, do you know what I want to do? I'm going to win the lotto like you are, but they just keep on giving me the wrong numbers. But when I win the lotto, I'm going to buy a place in the country and I'm going to build a strip and maybe even asphalt strip because I don't want to cut the grass. And But off the strip, we like the, the, um, the taxiways to the hangar, which will have these big like, doors that will open up and... In there will be all my models and everything, and I'll just open up that door, wheel out the plane that I want to fly that day, and off I go. And then I can go back in the little hangar. How dare you steal my idea? Oh, I've got a copyright. That's How a, dare you? Look, we can share it. I'll invite you. <laughs> Here's the deal. If you win the lotto before myself, before I do, I'll come up to your place and then vice versa. We can spend each, um, the holidays <laughs> at each other's lotto hangers. Done. That'd be perfect. Except I'll tell you a funny story. I rang my wife up one day. I said, honey, I said, we've won lotto. She said, how much did you win? 65 cents. Well done. Yeah, look, <laughs> you just, look, you know, it's like fishing. They always say you've got to get rid of the small fish before you can get to the big fish. So let's just get those out of the way now and wait for the big $80 million draw to come through and then we'll be right. Actually, there, yep. was, there was somebody who just won the $50 million draw or something up in Queensland for the Powerball or something. And, and That's right. I, I think... It was a few days later and they still hadn't found the owner. I'm like, crikey, I would have been there and say, give me the cash now so I can go and retire. Yeah, but they didn't even have the, the ticket um, registered uh, or anything. On, on their registered. Yeah, they yeah. didn't have it registered on their card. You know, I'm thinking, you know, Mrs. and I, we check all the time and we're just waiting for that phone call to ring. You know, guess what? You've won. Uh, we can all live in hope. Yeah, now, yeah live in hope. We've reached that point where I ask the signature question that I ask everybody, and that is, what, what has been your favourite model? Oh, what has been my favourite model? I've just had so many fantastic aircraft over the years. I would have to go back and say the best aircraft that I ever flew and I flew it and flew it and flew it and never crashed it, never had an issue, was when I was flying F3A pattern. I had a lot of issues early on with radios and I had pancaked some very good models with a particular brand of radio, which we eventually figured out what the issues were. As I said earlier, batteries. This is what crashes 99.9% of the planes 
The rest of the time, it's dumb funds, in my humble opinion, pretty much. Anyway, I ended up buying a Kraft signature radio from Kraft Australia. Eric Bilby was the chap I dealt with. And Eric said, if you send me that radio back every six months for servicing, I guarantee you will not crash. Guess what? His guarantee was worth its weight in gold. Never, ever failed that radio. So I had a Kraft signature radio. I'm going back to the mid-80s, $1,000 for a radio. Huge amount of money. Probably about five times my weekly salary at the time. But we bought that radio, so I had a Kraft signature, and I had a Curari, which was designed by Hanno Pretner. Yep. And I had an OS61 FSR side exhaust with a tune pipe, and it had Romare retracts, and I would have done more than a thousand flights on that airframe with never a crash. It never, ever let me down. It was the most enjoyable, relaxing, precise aircraft I've ever, ever flown. Please. So that, that's it. The Hanno Pretner models, a friend of mine had one. Actually, he's moving to the Gold Coast. Might be coming up to join you to fly, but um, I think he had one for sale. But, but look, that's a great combination, though. I, I like that. You're the first guest to ever put a combination in with the radio and the motor and the and the kit. If, if you can't tell, I, I'm in the midst of battling a cold, and uh, I tried my best to uh, to stay in there, but we're going to call it quits. I have a, sure. pile, I have a pile of tissues next to me which I've muted out me blowing my nose all the way through, but I'm going down. Also, I haven't made you cry. That's important. No, that'll be after. I'll probably (laughs) cry later. (laughs) But, look, it's been a pleasure. And really, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you for all the work that you do with me for Flat Out RC magazine. It was, was, you're always really enthusiastic. You know, if I, you know, got in contact with you and say, hey, you want to write something, you'd always say, yeah, no problem. And there was never any issue. And, you know, the, the Flat Out RC family is very, very small it's it's uh it's but you're definitely a big part of that you know there's you brian winch the designer cosmo mortius and really myself as the core group that that did it so uh, you will always go down in history as one of the big contributors to flat out rc and i'll never forget no, that it, so, was my, it was honestly my pleasure i enjoyed doing it yeah and i, and I know that and, and i really appreciate that the articles are always great i never had an issue with the articles and you know um they were awesome so big thank you from from me to you and and again, thank you for being on the Flat Out RC podcast. My, my, and if you ever need anything done, or uh, maybe we can have a chat one now that this COVID thing hopefully will come to an end one of these days when I come back down to Melbourne again, we can get together and have a yarn about what other things we can sort of do. Because I, I still go to, I try to get, you know, some do's, but there's been nothing on for a year. Yeah, no, nah, it's coming back. So anyway, hang in there, Peter. Thanks a lot. No worries, my friend. Have a good one. Get better. About to leave. Already packing, come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Big thank you to Peter Ricks for joining me. It was good to catch up with Peter, and I really didn't know his entire story. I just knew him through writing and some of the you know the correspondence that we've had over the years, but. Uh, Love to find out more about about 
aero modelers and their life in the hobby because I find it all interesting, doesn't matter who they are. So big thank you to Peter for, for joining me and spending the time with me. Uh, it's going to be a big week. Uh, hopefully this time next week when I record, uh, as I call the intros and outros, I say to my wife, got to go and call the, record the intros and outros of the podcast for the week. I, whether, fingers crossed, the weather, if the weather's good, I'll be at a flying event at my local flying club, the uh, Monty Tyrrell Scale Day at the P and Darks Club, Pakenham District Aeromotors Club down here in... Uh, Pakenham, Victoria, Australia. If you're from overseas, unfortunately, you won't be able to come. Too many restrictions with COVID. But if you're, if you're in the local area and you, you've, you've got a scale plane, whether it be scratch built, kit built, or ARF, come on down to the Pakenham Club this Sunday, the 28th, for the Monty Tyrrell Day. I think it's about a $5 entry fee um, for everyone. But uh, if the weather's great, it's going to be a good day. So come on down. Hope to see you there. I'll be there. Hopefully, I'm going to shoot a video, actually. My plan is to shoot a video of the day. I haven't shot a video at an event for over 12 months. Actually, I, I, today I had the opportunity to film, to photograph some stuff. I, I worked out I hadn't used my photography gear for a year. I haven't been able to get out. Mar, Mar, March the 10th, 2020 was the last time I used my camera gear. But I had it out uh, today for a non-flying related thing. So I was taking photographs of motocross. Anyway. We'll be back next week with plenty more. Till then, have a great week and might see at the Pakenham Flying Club at their scale day. <laughs>